<clears throat> well, here, here we are at the ending of uh, our first full day of this retreat. I sense a certain amount of fatigue <laughs> in the group. Could be my imagination. <laughs> But I feel good about the day, the effort that's being made. No, how, no matter how much uh, one finds uh, inspiring or uplifting ways to talk about samadhi, or unshakability of heart, or the bliss of one-pointedness. It's easy to talk. I mean, sometimes it's not easy to talk, like right at this moment. (laughs) But in general, it's easy to talk about the practice, and it's another thing to do it. And And I feel that we're, we're running up against this, this important aspect of the Dhamma, that it's, in the Buddha's words, pajatang vetita bhavanyuhi. It's to be experienced by each one for himself. It, it's, a, it's a function of our own practice, our own recognition, our own seeing. And though the descriptions of that can be nice for upliftingness to, to make us feel, well, let's keep going. It's still no shortcut. One still just has to, to keep going. And that willingness, willingness to be with restlessness, willingness to be with fatigue, Willingness to be with sleepiness. Willingness to learn to make effort and to accept the old pattern, the old karmic tendency to to have our efforts uh, bound to, to the desire to achieve a goal. And so that if the effort doesn't do what we want it to do, to, to feel this whole... pattern of uh, despair come up, discouragement. The training of the heart takes a lot of effort, but it's not just any old effort. It's, uh, it's a wise effort, a balanced effort, and that wise, balanced effort becomes more clear with our trial and error. The Buddha himself made tremendous efforts, but it, 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 uh, even with his background of great virtue, great vow power from the past, it took him quite some time to get his effort balanced. Let that be reassuring. 
he um, when as the story goes he had the Im- impressions that his life of pleasure in the palace in the palaces he had a palace for the wet season a palace for the cold season a, a palace for the um, hot season so that he could be comfortable refined fabrics and good food and beautiful beings around him when there was the penetration into his being that that even with the effort to keep things pleasant that even with that effort there was there was still going to be old age sickness and death there was still the the reality of change when he recognized that on some level that he had had sort of ignorant vanity that his youth, that his beauty, that his vigor was somehow permanent. And the truth of impermanence had been obscured by, by samadhi, a kind of samadhi, not right samadhi, but a kind of samadhi uh, of resonating with the pleasure of life, keeping things pleasant. But when it penetrated into his being, when the image of aging really impressed itself on him when he saw an old person and really reflected this will befall me when he saw a sick person and really reflected this is part of change too my body is subject to illness when he saw a a corpse and it really penetrated into his being that uh, that was exhibiting a truth that, that, that this body was subject to. And as the story gold uh, went, when the fourth heavenly messenger, old age sickness, death, and the fourth heavenly messenger of a, of a seeker, a spiritual seeker, a peaceful countenance of someone with a shaven head and a robe or someone that appeared to be taking a direction in life of wanting to inquire what is going on, what is true, what is timeless. That when that image appeared, it stirred something deep within the prince, the young prince. But when, but when he went off to practice the spiritual path, his, uh, he made lots of effort, but his efforts were not balanced. They weren't really guided by wisdom. His first effort was to go up, go beyond. And through the teachers of the time, he developed uh, meditations on formlessness so that he didn't even feel his body going up into the realm of nothingness and neither perception nor non-perception, sort of going into a very refined place where there wasn't much impingement. takes a lot of effort to, to kind of remove the mind so that it's not receiving the impressions. This kind of idea of heaven or idea of uh, peace or timeless, timelessness somehow being beyond. He tried that for some time but then kept sensing that he was coming down again. And then I suppose he went through this effort where he felt, well, the body's bringing me down. It must be because I'm bound to this body and its pleasures and its desires. 
it's this evil body and, and, it, and its attachment to pleasure. They used a lot of effort then to crush that attachment, to torture himself, to starve himself, to avoid any kind of pleasure, to take pleasure in denying it, to take pleasure in torturing himself. sleeping on beds of thorns and and he realized my willpower is very strong but I don't feel peaceful and he was quite ill too because through starving himself in these various uh, exhausting austerities he couldn't stand up properly he kept falling over and he knew that wasn't the path. So there's effort involved. There's effort involved. We all know the effort of trying to get what we want, the effort of trying to work for a holiday or to get the attention of someone that we find pleasing to get their attention or the effort to get something that we want. It's not that we don't know effort. And we all know pain because even to get things that we want, we've experienced kinds of obstacles and yet we're willing to work hard for what we want but does our effort lead to peace does it lead to, to a lasting sense of satisfaction in the in the 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 seeking bodhisattva the young buddha to be realized his effort wasn't wasn't quite right and as the story goes, he, he uh, then accepted food one day, some milk rice, from the maiden, what was her name? Sujata. Sujata. As a kind of symbol of accepting the realm of form again. A symbol of uh, receiving the feminine, receiving the form, receiving the body not seeing it as evil, realizing that without eating he didn't have strength, not being afraid of the ease and the pleasure that can come from just uh, supporting this body. And then it said that he had a memory, he, he told his monks and nuns that he had a memory of a pleasure that he had as a child, the pleasure he had of sitting under a tree and just watching his breath. He was sitting under a tree during a plowing festival that his father, the king, was having. And the while sitting under the tree in the innocence of the child, without being very complicated, just notice if he sustained his attention on the simplicity of the <coughs> breath, that he became very calm, very happy, very still. And the thought uh, arose in him, I don't need to be afraid of this pleasure. This is not an evil pleasure. This is, not, this is a pleasure that is generated through, through skill. Now we're not saying that, that pleasure is evil. But when there's attachment to getting what I want, attachment to seeing what I want, or to hearing what I want, or to feeling what I want, or to having what I want. 
Then we get these kind of situations that we read about in this letter tonight. We get these kind of wars. People wanting this land, people wanting that land. And since sensory pleasure is what it is, it's, it's not bad or good, it is what it is. But if we don't recognize its impermanent nature, there's this kind of attachment to wanting things to be pleasing. And it leads us, uh, our whole spirit, to be very externally preoccupied. There's no inner strength. We teach in a school every year in the southern part of the United States, in South Carolina. And it's become somewhat, uh, somewhat of an epidemic in the United States now, this, this condition called attention deficit disorder. And uh, where the parents and the teachers are talking about kids that can't keep their mind on anything. They just bounce off the wall. And the uh, solution, one way to deal with the problem, has been uh, a massive uh, prescribing of uh, high-powered medication. I'm not, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not saying that this medication doesn't help. I think it's quite possible that Maybe some people really need it, but they're being prescribed high-powered amphetamines, which is speed, which has this bizarre effect of tranquilizing some of these young people. And so at lunchtime, the headmaster who invites us to the school says quite a few of the people line up and then get, get their medicine. And the headmaster says in his gut, he's worried about this. He says he doesn't feel good about it. He's not saying that no one's benefiting from it, but he doesn't feel like that's the solution. If you look at the, the mind, what happens to the mind when it's being pulled out by television, and the, and the capacity to concentrate on the television isn't coming from an inner strength to keep it there. The images are changing so fast and there's the drama and the interest that it kind of hooks one. Hooks one or the video games. Hooks one to hold one's attention. We went to the, to the school and, and uh, put forward the idea of actually training our attention. I mean the teachers can shout at the kids, concentrate, concentrate. But just to shout at someone to concentrate doesn't make it that easy to concentrate. What are the tools of actually learning how to train the attention? So we actually practice just closing, closing our eyes and being still for five minutes, for ten minutes, and just noticing the body. This was quite difficult. But quite a few of, the, of them had very powerful experiences of feeling this wave of unease, wave of discomfort come up. The old ghost of, of how we have been conditioned to be, to look at this for an instant, that for an instant, say this, say that, keep kind of touching on stimulating things to keep a kind of general level of stimulation, general level of kind of pleasure, which is actually a stressful kind of pleasure. Keep that level going. To stop, then one feels the momentum the karmic residue come up. We just encourage these 
kids to breathe for a few minutes through that and to be okay with that feeling. And not to have to believe that that feeling is me. Well, have we had the chance to look at some of that today? Maybe not as to such an extreme degree. The residue of the desire to talk, the residue of restlessness, the residue of just wanting to kind of move around. Kind of feelings come up, thoughts come up of liking, of disliking. Now what is this tendency to believe these thoughts? This tendency to believe these thoughts is me, this is me. Then when we believe something is me, then we just do what it says. If it says go over here, we go over there. If it says go over here, we go over there. If it says I don't like this, then we leave it. I like this, and we go for it. Which is all right, but how trustworthy is it? The mind says, I really like going on a retreat. I want to go on a retreat and get peaceful. So we go on a retreat. Then we're on the retreat. And <laughs> what am I sitting in here for? I want to be walking (coughs) then we go walking and I want to be still then we try to be still these moods are very untrustworthy and to really know what we want really know what we don't want to really know what's good for us we have the chance to cultivate our own wisdom our own clear seeing I don't know how to say it very clearly or in a very inspiring way, but I know this activity of uh, following up this insight that came to the Buddha. I don't need to be afraid of this kind of pleasure. It's the pleasure that's not coming just from getting stimulating things, but the pleasure that's coming from generating within our own being the capacity to be with something because we've chosen to be with that. Even something neutral, the breath is very neutral, so it's not hooking us because of its exciting nature. But to stay with the breath, and we're using our own capacity to attend to, to receive, to be in touch with life. And having the opportunity to begin to free ourselves from being uh, hijacked by every impulse and every thought and every worry. It's, it's such tyranny. I, I find that so frustrating and humiliating to, to just be knocked down, knocked aside by everything that goes through. You might not have this that experience, but I have that experience sometimes. And, to, and to, to then have the chance to consciously say, train the heart to steady itself on the breath, on the body, to sustain moments of attention, of mindfulness, and learning to, to, to let go, learning not to have to worry now, not to have to plan now, to see that and consciously say later, to allow one's wisdom to consciously learn to put aside and steady 
and then marshalling our resources to can we be simple enough and humble enough to be with an in-breath? Can we be simple enough and humble enough to sustain our attention on the out-breath? To walk back and forth? To stay with that? So that we have a moment, two moments of mindfulness. Or as our teacher calls it, it's like a drip. You get a few drips coming out of a cup. If you're pouring it. When you get a few moments together, then it's drip, drip, drip. And as we learn to sustain our attention, it's like pouring it out. I remember the first, the first retreat I went on, I was in a confused state. This was 19 years ago. Confused emotional state when I was at Oxford. They said, watch my breath. I just was in a confused emotional state. But I, I stayed with it. And there were times, not that frequently, but there were times on that retreat, the first one, where just actually staying with the breath, staying with the breath, I felt this unification, this power, this energy, this fullness. I thought, wow, what is that? <laughs> Lovely feeling. I haven't smoked anything. I haven't drank anything. Except water. such a revelation that there, within our own heart there's a possibility, a wellspring of uh, joy, of fullness. And now when I get the chance, I really, I really find it a precious luxury, a wonderful opportunity to have the chance just to gather and refresh and collect on the breath. Just let our being be massaged by the breath, be massaged by awareness. So we're staying with the breath, but we're not controlling the breath. We're keeping our attention so that it's steady to receive the breath, but we're not pressing the breath, we're not squeezing it, we're not choking it, we're not telling it what to do. So this is learning to allow our effort to be balanced. It's allowing our attention to be in touch, to receive the breath, but still to let go so that the breath can flow in its own way. If it wants to be deep, let it be deep. If it wants to be shallow, let it be shallow. We really need to give it time. Sometimes our thoughts might say, gosh, this is not working, it's not getting anywhere. But if if we plant seeds, we don't get immediate... We might think we're losing something when we're planting the seeds. Oh, I'm losing these seeds. But we get some flowers back. 
Or in Thailand, when you, you watch them plant their eyes, they might think, oh, they're losing their eyes, but then they, it grows back. So they get a whole harvest so that they can eat that. So let's just, as, as a gesture, for those who might be going through a sense of, um, I don't know if it's getting anywhere, make a gesture of just making this offer in faith. Because we can't really test this unless we really give it a chance. Just really allow it to work. And when the thoughts then come up, judging that it's not really working, really turn to the thought and say, why do I believe you? Just learn to just see that as a thought. Not to hate it, not to believe it. And then learn to just return, to train our capacity to notice. What we're doing is we're learning how to notice, to sustain noticing. It's very different from just thinking about life all the time. It's to notice. It's the gateway to the heart. The heart is that aspect of our being which is aware, which is bright. The Buddha taught that actually our, our heart is, is already clear and already radiant and already pure. Here and now, that it's already perfect. But that we don't notice it. We don't notice it because of the things that confuses, the things that move through the heart space. Well, when our being is, is totally extroverted on being confused by thoughts of me and you and wanting and not wanting, when it's addicted to getting a pleasant sight, a pleasant sound, a pleasant feeling, a pleasant circumstance, then it's very form-oriented. It's very externally obsessed. These moments of noticing were starting to open up the gateway to the refuge of Buddha, of, of, of listening, the gateway of that part of the heart that's able to be attentive, able to be aware, If we stay with this, then we have the opportunity to, to find our own heart, to find our own capacity to be content. And when we're feeling content with an in-breath and an out-breath, we're much less likely to want to fight somebody else or kill somebody else. We might think that's all beyond us, that can't happen to us, but uh, I don't think they thought it could happen in Bosnia the way it is. When we don't have samadhi, when we don't have steadiness of heart, we can do all kinds of things. We can be really swept away with anger, swept away with confusion. When we have steadiness of heart, we can learn to find ease in simple situations. And even more importantly, if we don't have ease, if we don't have uh, peacefulness, if our mind's not doing what we want it to do, 
at least with some capacity through training of our heart to learn to be with how things are. We have the opportunity to just see the nature of things. To actually see that everything is changing. The breath is changing. Our thoughts are changing. The days are changing. The sounds are changing. And and when our own capacity to stay with life, to be in touch with life, is established, then there's the opportunity to see life in its changing nature. And when we really begin to see this body, these moods, these thoughts, this day changing, then the idea that we find stability through keeping things a certain way becomes obviously crazy. Then the idea that we own this body, or that we own this thought, or that we own this country, or this house, We had dinner in California last year with someone who thought they owned their house until the earthquake came and it was totally flattened. If we really start to see change, the change of a breath, the change of a thought, then this vanity and and, and illusion of ownership can start to drop away and we can then offer back, offer back to nature, offer back to life. What wasn't ours? It, It belongs to Dhamma. Offer it back to this eternal jewel of truth. And how ironic, in the very offering back what wasn't ours anyway, we find ourselves dwelling in that, in that which is. The pure heart. But to just say the pure heart, or to say God, or to say the timeless, these are words that remind us of the timeless, and of the divine, or of that which is peaceful. And that's nice for encouraging us to maybe keep looking. But there's nothing that can take the place of our willingness to actually do it, to actually make the effort to train the heart to be with how things are and then to face all of the things that we tend to take for ourselves, all the moods, all the restlessness, all the discouragement. And so I, forgive me if I've kept you up too long, I'll finish soon, but um, I really encourage us to, to really apply ourselves. This is a very precious time to keep beginning again take this opportunity of not having to produce so much in the way of engaging each other, just to cultivate this refuge in Buddha, being awake, being mindful, to walking, to sitting, to breathing, to eating, to doing our job, moment after moment after moment, stringing together this sense of just being with how it is, being with how it is, being with how it is, letting things be, letting the changes change, and surprisingly finding ourselves held and dwelling in that which is, this quality of being awake, being attentive. And just as a peaceful person who can enjoy their breath and feel the wealth and bounty and richness of just being able to be, to be alive, to be awake. 
just as that person is, is uh, I feel less likely to generate a lot of conflict, a lot of confusion that comes when we try to hoard and accumulate. So too may this, uh, may this effort that we're all making, may it truly bring peace and harmony and nobility into our own lives. May that spill out into our families, into our communities. May it also affect this whole world. May it also bless Bosnia. So we could finish this evening by um, by offering back to nature any blessings from the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.